Hello and welcome to the Grace Place NYC. We are a church in the neighborhood of Hamilton Heights in Harlem. Our purpose is to live for Christ, love the lost, and transform our culture. The title of my message this morning is The Genius of the Genealogy of Jesus. Now that is a mouthful right there. Can you say that ten times over? The Genius of the Genealogy of of Jesus. Have any of you ever traced your family tree through Ancestry.com or a company like this? Some of you have. I have never done it, but I find it fascinating, and I would love to do it at some point. My mother-in-law did this, and she was so excited when she found out that she was 1% Jewish. Uh, she loves the Jewish people, and she takes that scripture, pray for the peace of Jerusalem very seriously, and she prays for the Jewish people every single day. So she was so excited when she found out she was about 1% Jewish. I think one of the amazing byproducts of building a family tree are the stories that start to emerge. People find out how their family got to the United States, if you live here in the States. Uh, people find out things about their family that they never knew. Some folks find out that they were related to someone famous, maybe a former uh, president or something like that. They, these stories start to emerge about their history. It's fascinating. Well, in today's text, we're going to be looking at Jesus's Ancestry.com profile, okay? And we find it in the Gospel of Matthew, chapter number one. This gospel was written by the disciple Matthew, who was a tax collector before Jesus called him to follow him. And this eyewitness to the ministry of Jesus wrote his genealogy for all of us to have. And so uh, I would just appreciate that if you would bear with me, I'm going to read 17 verses this morning and I'm going to read a lot of confusing names. So if you could just bear with me as I try to read this as fast as I can. Uh, I would appreciate that. Matthew chapter 1, starting with verse number 1. This is the genealogy of Jesus, the Messiah, the son of David, the son of Abraham. Abraham was the father of Isaac, Isaac the father of Jacob, Jacob the father of Judah and his brothers, Judah the father of Perez and Zerah, whose mother was Tamar, Perez the father of Hezron, Hezron the father of Ram, Ram the father of Amminadab, Amminadab the father of Nashon, Nashon, the father of Salmon. Salmon, the father of Boaz, whose mother was Rahab. Boaz, the father of Obed, whose mother was Ruth. Obed, the father of Jesse. And Jesse, the father of King David. David was the father of Solomon, whose mother had been Uriah's wife. Very interesting. Verse 7. Solomon, the father of Rehoboam. Rehoboam, the father of Abijah. Abijah, the father of Asa. Asa, the father of Jehoshaphat. Jehoshaphat, the father of Jehoram. Jehoram, the father of Uzziah, Uzziah, the father of Jotham, Jotham, the father of Ahaz, Ahaz, the father of Hezekiah. I'm out of breath, but I've got seven more verses to go here. Hezekiah, the father of Manasseh, Manasseh, the father of Amon, Amon, the father of Josiah, and Josiah, the father of Jeconiah, and his brothers at the time of the exile to Babylon. After the exile to Babylon, Jeconiah was the father of Shealtiel, Shealtiel, the father of Zerubbabel, Zerubbabel, the father of Abihud, Abihud, the father of Eliakim, Eliakim, the father of Azor, Azor, the father of Zadok, Zadok, the father of Akim, Akim, the father of Elihud, Elihud, the father of Eleazar, Eleazar, the father of Methan, Methan, the father of Jacob, and Jacob, the father of Joseph, the husband of Mary, and Mary was the mother of Jesus, who was called the Messiah. Here we have the only time where it, where it doesn't say, 
so-and-so was the father of, but it, now it shifts to Mary was the mother of Jesus because we know that Joseph, although the legal father of Jesus, was not the biological father of Jesus. Verse 17, thus there were 14 generations in all from Abraham to David, 14 from David to the exile to Babylon, and 14 from the exile to the Messiah. I deserve an offering just for reading all of that. Amen? Let's pray. Father, we just pray that your spirit would anoint me, and I pray that our hearts would be open to whatever you want to do today. In Jesus' name, amen. You might be thinking to yourself right now, I can't believe I got up this morning and came to church. Pastor Stephen decided to bore me to death by preaching on a genealogy. Who preaches on a genealogy? Well, I do. <laughs> and if you think about it, nothing in our Bibles is there by accident. Okay? The Holy Spirit inspired the authors to write 66 books of the Bible uh, of what God wanted us to know about Him and what He wanted us to know about history. So if it's in the Bible, it can be expounded upon and preached about for our edification and encouragement. Okay, So I'm going to attempt to preach on a genealogy this morning. And the first thing I'd like to say about this text is that Matthew did not start it out by saying once upon a time or a long time ago in a galaxy far, far away. My wife has been watching the Star Wars movies with Avia recently, and now my daughter thinks she's Rey, and she's convinced that she has the Force, and so she's been killing me with lightsabers, and then she raises me from the dead just to kill me again. It's a hard life being her dad, but I guess someone's got to do it. Uh, stories that begin like this are fairy tales, they're myths, they're legends that are not true, but might teach us good things or entertain us. But by Matthew starting out his story of Jesus, by giving us his genealogy, by giving us his historical account, what he's doing here is grounding what Jesus is and what he's about to do. He's grounding all of these things in history. That's very important because he's telling us that what you're about to read about Jesus is true, is factual, and is historical. The virgin birth really happened. The angelic visitations really happened. Jesus' sinless life really happened. His crucifixion really happened. And his resurrection really happened. And so what Matthew is doing is he's grounding all of these things into history. And this genealogy is not simply just a list of names, but a proof of the faithfulness of God that he carried out his promise to Abraham that the entire world would be blessed through his descendants. It was a sign that God preserved the children of Abraham through disobedience, through war, and even exile to be the channel through which Christ came into the world. This genealogy also shows us that Jesus had royal blood in him, as it tells us that he came from the line of David, Israel's greatest king. Any true Messiah of Israel would have had to come from the line of both Abraham and David, and so this genealogical account shows us that Jesus came from both. Something else that I'd like us to understand about ancient genealogies, which I learned through uh, Tim Keller, actually, in his book, Hidden Christmas, is that in a communal, family-oriented society in which Jesus was born into, genealogies were more than just historical record. They were more than just 
a list of names. In our individualistic Western culture, we promote ourselves to others with a list of of degrees, with a list of work experience, with a list of our achievements. What do we call that? Anybody know? A resume. It's called a resume. That's how we promote ourselves, and that's how we get jobs, by, by, by creating this document with all of these things in it. But in that time, a genealogy was a resume of sorts. We still look to family name as a status symbol today. Like, if you ever hear someone with the last name Rockefeller or Kennedy or Vanderbilt, you, you know, you're going to perk up and I wonder, I wonder if they're related to so-and-so. But in those times, your family and pedigree and the people you were connected to, that was, in essence, your resume. It was your way of saying to the world, this is who I am. And in those days, people would tinker with their resumes, just like some people do today, right? Let's just be honest. Our resumes are better than we actually are, aren't they? Come on, let's just be real. We only put things that will make us look good in our resume. We capture the best version of ourselves in our resume, okay? We'll even find super fancy titles for the simple jobs we did, don't we, right? I was a creative burger artist. In other words, you flip burgers at Mickey D's when you were 16 years old, okay? Or I was the director of first impressions at my last company. In other words, you were the receptionist. Or I was the media distribution officer. You were a paper boy or paper girl, okay? But we find these super fancy names to put on our resume to make us look, to, to shed the best light on us as possible. And these are just funny, harmless examples. But some people actually lie on their resumes to make them look better to their prospective employer. And I know none of us would ever do anything like that, but some people do. Well, during the first century, people would do the same thing. They would purposely leave someone out of their genealogy because they didn't want to identify with that person. It's part of the honor-shame culture they lived in during that time. But what's interesting is that Matthew does the opposite of that with Jesus' genealogy. Isn't that interesting? There are several things that stick out in this genealogical account, but I want to highlight the fact that Matthew includes five women in this genealogy. Tamar, Rahab, Ruth, Bathsheba, and Mary. And that might not seem like anything to you, but as I continuing on with this message, you will understand that this is a big deal. So what we see in this list is a foreshadowing of the gospel. It's a picture of the purpose of why Jesus entered into the story of his creation. The women in this genealogy represent what Christmas is all about. And to take that a step further, what the gospel is all about. Because ultimately, Jesus was born to die. Okay? Jesus was born to die. To die. So today we're going to look at what the women included in the genealogy of Jesus represents for us during this Christmas season. So, number one, the valueless of society have value in the family of God. The valueless of society have value in the family of God. Women in that time and culture did not have value at all, they were not allowed to go to school and be educated. Their future was dependent upon whom they married. If they married someone of wealth and means, that would be their future. And if they married someone who was poor, that would be their future. 
They were not allowed to vote and couldn't even be a witness in a court case. They were treated like property. They were valueless in that society and in that culture and in that time. Women, therefore, would never be mentioned in a list like this in that time, let alone five of them. Okay? Many secular people will say that the Bible has a low view of women, but this shows me that God has a very high view of women. Enough to, to tell Matthew to add five of them to the genealogy of Jesus. Several weeks ago, there was an uproar in Christian circles. I don't know how plugged in you are, but there was an uproar in Christian circles because uh, John MacArthur, who is a prominent uh, pastor and Bible teacher in California, when asked about Beth Moore, a prominent woman preacher, said that she needed to go home. I can leave uh, that up to you, what you want to interpret what he meant, but I think it's safe to say that John MacArthur does not believe that women should preach. And just to be clear, in our church, we affirm women leaders, we affirm women preachers, we affirm whatever else they feel God is calling them to be. Okay. And not only does Matthew uh, list five women in Jesus' genealogy, but who were the first people to witness Christ's resurrection? It was women. The gospel writers tell us that it was Mary Magdalene, along with some other women, that saw the risen Christ first. God could have chosen a man to be the first one to see the resurrected Jesus. He could have chosen any man. There was a lot of them around. Okay, He could have chosen any man to be the first one to see the risen Christ, yet he chose women. Despite the fact that they would have been considered unreliable messengers in that time, God chose them to be the first proclaimers of the risen Christ. They were the first ones to preach the gospel, saying, I saw Jesus. I saw the body of Jesus. I saw the resurrected body of Jesus. It was women who were chosen to be the first ones to be the proclaimer of the gospel. Jesus came to this earth to give us value. Our value does not come from our gender. Our value does not come from whether culture says we're valuable or not. Our value does not come from the color of our skin. Our value does not come from our citizenship in the United States of America. Our value comes from an outside source. Therefore, every single human has value because our value comes from the love God has for us and the fact that we are created in His image and in His likeness. That is where our value comes from. Amen? The fact that God wanted these women included in the genealogy of His Son, despite His pedigree and reputation being tarnished, should speak volumes to us. Let's look at Galatians chapter 3, starting with verse 26, and I've been quoting this scripture a lot lately. It says this, So in Christ Jesus you are all children of God through faith, for all of you who were baptized into Christ have clothed yourselves with Christ. Verse 28, There is neither Jew nor Gentile, neither slave nor free, nor is there male and female, for you are all one in Christ Jesus. If you belong to Christ, then you are Abraham's seed and heirs according to the promise. Paul isn't saying that you lose your distinctiveness when you come to faith in Jesus. That's not what he's trying to communicate in this passage. He's not saying that you become gender fluid when you come to Christ. Okay, He's not saying there's no longer any uniqueness about you once you come to Christ. What he is saying is that we are all equals in the family of God through Christ. 
We are all equals. We are all equally sinful and lost and equally loved and accepted. That is what the Apostle Paul is telling us here. People whom the world deems valueless have value in the family of God. Refugees have value in the family of God. Homeless folks and beggars have value in the family of God. Broke people have value in the family of God. Broken people have value in the family of God. The unborn have value in the family of God. The unwanted and abused have family, have value in the family of God. Despite your past, despite your present, despite your future, you have value in the family of God. The second thing that these women included in Jesus' genealogy represent for us this Christmas season is that outsiders become insiders in the family of God. Outsiders become insiders in the family of God. These women were outsiders simply because of their gender. Have you ever been on the outside looking in because of something you couldn't control at all? I remember going to church as a teenager and I already felt like an outsider for a variety of reasons. And I remember walking into it. We had Sunday school class for all of the youth in our church. And then we had, you know, our regular service or whatever. I remember walking into Sunday school where all the youth were. And I remember going into the back and, and about to sit down. And the most popular kid in our youth group at the time, uh, he turns around and he does this to me. Uh, and he was mocking the fact that I was Indian. And for whatever reason, Indians turn their head like this and said it like this. I have no idea why, but we do it. And me already being uncomfortable being an Indian because I was constantly reminded how different I was from everybody else in not a very nice way. I was mortified and I felt terrible as he did this. His little groupy friends all laughed at me and I felt so uncomfortable and it just reinforced what I was already feeling about myself because right because now I love the fact that I'm Indian. I love my culture. I definitely love my food. Okay. I love my history. I love all of those things. But there was a time in my life where I didn't like it. There was a time in my life where I asked God several times, God, why did you have to make me Indian? Because I, I, I just always felt like I didn't fit in. I always felt different. And I was constantly reminded of that fact. And that it was something that I couldn't control. It was out of my control. I was Indian. I couldn't change it. I could shave my head or I could... Uh, do whatever, try to not ever go out in the sun, but it would not change the fact that I was Indian. Tamar, Rahab, and Ruth were not Jewish, meaning they were considered outsiders because of their race. Ruth, who was the daughter-in-law of Naomi, was actually a Moabitess, and the Moabites were completely excluded from the nation of Israel because they did not help out the Israelites with food and water when they left Egypt on the way to the promised land. They refused to help them with any food and water. And later on, they hired a prophet to speak a curse over Israel. Because of these two instances, in the book of Deuteronomy, the Israelites are told to never seek the peace or prosperity of the Moabites. Yet a woman... Strike one, who was a Moabite, strike two, three, four, five, six, and seven, ends up on the genealogical account of Jesus. In God's family and kingdom, there are no outsiders. We are all welcome in the family of God. And God made sure that that came through in the life of Jesus from literally 
the very beginning. Before we ever hear of the birth of Jesus or anything like that, it came through loud and clear in the genealogical account of Jesus that there are no outsiders in the family of God. Jesus, throughout his parables, would make the Samaritan the hero of the story. In Jewish culture at that time, the Samaritans were the outcasts and hated by the Jews. Jews were actually racist towards the Samaritans because the Samaritans were a half-breed of people. But, uh, they were half Jew and half other stuff. And so they were, they were a, a Jew and Gentile mix, right? And so the Jews saw them as inferior. And because of that, the Samaritans didn't like the Jewish people either. Jesus was rebuked over and over by the Pharisees for hanging out and having dinner and having parties with outsiders, right? Adulterers, prostitutes, tax collectors, and sinners. He was constantly being called out by the Pharisees for spending time with them. Most of the book of Acts is about Christianity moving from a strictly Jewish movement to a movement for both Jews and Gentiles, right? Here at the Grace Place NYC, we don't have outsiders and insiders. Everybody is on the inside. As soon as you walk in those doors, you are an insider. If you live in this neighborhood, if you come to church or not, you are an insider because we don't have outsiders and insiders here at the Grace Place NYC. We don't form cliques here. Okay? We are a community of people. Now, we might hang out with small groups of people or whatever at times, but it's not this thing where you have to you have to be a certain type of person in order to hang out with us. We don't do things like that. I expect everyone in our church, and especially if you're serving in a ministry, to welcome everyone and anyone and show the kindness and love of Jesus to them. We are not too big or too busy to talk to someone in our church, period, end of discussion. The third thing that the women in the genealogy of Jesus represent to us is Regardless of your history, you can be included in his story. Regardless of your history, you can be included in his story. Not only did Matthew include these three women into the genealogy, three of these women had immoral pasts. And Mary was most likely accused of immorality because she was pregnant before she actually married Joseph. But specifically, three of them were involved in some evil, unholy things. Rahab, for instance... You know what, what kind of job she had? She had a real upstanding job. She was a prostitute, okay? And Tamar was even worse. She actually posed as a prostitute in order to trick her father-in-law uh, to sleep with her, and he impregnated her, okay? She was included in the genealogy. How many of you would want these two women connected and linked to you if you were showing off who you were to the world? And then, of course, Bathsheba committed adultery with David, and that's why she was listed as, she wasn't even listed as David's wife in the genealogy. Matthew said that she was Uriah's wife in the genealogical account. These, I think it's safe to say, were not considered upstanding women. You would not uh, approach these women and, and, and ask them to mentor your teenage daughters, okay? But why would, why would, why would Matthew include these women in the genealogy? Why would he include these women in the list? Women from the wrong race. The fact that they were even women in the first place. A prostitute. A woman who tricked her father-in-law into sleeping with her. An adulteress. Why would he include these women 
in the account. Couldn't he have included some upstanding, like awesome leaders, people with a clean track record? If he was going to include women, couldn't he have included those women? The reason that these women are included in this genealogy is that God is making it loud and clear to us that no matter what you've done, you are invited into his family. Murderers can find forgiveness in Christ. Rapists can find forgiveness in Christ. Thieves, liars, cheaters can find forgiveness in Christ. People who are full of anger and resentment and bitterness and hatred, they can find the love of Jesus and find forgiveness in Christ. Regardless of what you've done, regardless of the mistakes you've made, regardless of the embarrassing moments in your life, you can be included in the family of God. Amen? I mean, that is incredible. That is amazing. Jesus isn't afraid to be connected to broken people. Jesus doesn't separate himself from people who might sully his reputation. Jesus transforms people through his grace, love, and acceptance. God sent Jesus to us so that he could identify with his creation. If I could have the worship team come up. Hebrews chapter 2, verses uh, 17 and 18 says this, Therefore it was necessary for him to be made in every respect like us. This is the author talking about Jesus. His brothers and sisters, so that he could be our merciful and faithful high priest before God. Then he could offer a sacrifice that would take away the sins of the people. Since he himself has gone through suffering and testing, he is able to help us when we are being tested. What a passage of Scripture right there. A little over five years ago, many of you know this, I was diagnosed with testicular cancer. And up until this moment in my life, I I didn't really know what it felt like to experience uncertainty about my life or uncertainty about my health or my future. And one of the things that is evident now, anytime I I share my story or a piece of my story, I always have people come up to me afterwards and they'll come up to me and they'll say, man, I went through cancer in my life or I'm currently going through cancer or would you pray for me or a family member that's going through cancer currently? Why do people do this? It's because they feel comfortable approaching me because I can identify with what they're going through because I went through exactly what they're going through, right? This is the incredible thing about our God. He can identify and relate and help us in our suffering. Why? Because he became one of us. Because he suffered like one of us. Because he was hungry like one of us. Because he had to go to the bathroom like one of us. Because he felt like an awkward teenager like one of us. Because he suffered through temptation like we suffer. All of the things that we experience in our humanness, Jesus experienced. And because of that, he can relate to us. He can identify with us. He knows what it's like to be tempted by Satan. He knows what it's like to be tempted with pride. He he knows what it's like to be tempted to depend on something 
uh, other than God for, for, uh, for his necessities in life. He knows what it's like. And because of that, he can identify and relate to us. This is unlike any other God in any other religion. Think about this. Jesus is forever linked to these women in his genealogy. He is forever linked to all of these women in the uh, genealogical account. He is forever linked to a prostitute. He is forever linked to an adulteress. He is for, there, there are murderers in his genealogy. David was a murderer. There are all sorts of different people in this historical account that Jesus is now forever linked to. He is forever linked to people who tarnish his resume and reputation. But let me tell you something, church. He wanted it that way. He wanted it that way. He didn't want this clean, buttoned-up genealogy. He wanted the world to know that he is not afraid to be linked with broken, hurting, sinful, evil, vile people. And if you come to him today, he will forever link himself to you as well. If you'll surrender your life to him today, if you make a decision that I want to follow Jesus, he will forever link himself to you today, regardless of your past, regardless of what you did last night or this morning, regardless of how evil it was, how shady it was, regardless of how embarrassing it was, if you will come to Him today, He will link Himself to you forever. And if you already have a relationship with Jesus, but you've just been doing things that break the heart of God, you have been sinning, you've been living in a way that you know is not honoring to God, I want you to know something God doesn't break His link with you just because you messed up. God doesn't throw you away just because you messed up. But He doesn't want you to stay that way either. He wants you to come to Him and receive His grace. He wants you to come to Him and receive forgiveness. He wants you to come to Him and receive freedom from whatever it is you're going through and you're bound by today. You don't have to continue to be bound. You don't have to continue to be in prison by your own thoughts, by your own decisions, by your own choices. Jesus wants to link himself to you today and he wants to do more than that. He wants to set you free. He wants, to, he wants you to encounter his kindness. He wants you to encounter his goodness. He wants you to encounter his grace. His grace is not just for those that don't know him. His grace is sufficient for those that don't know him and for those that do know him. Jesus is here for you today.